1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. And I uh, hope you enjoyed our countdown uh, for 2023. And uh, there's always always disputes about, you know, what interviews belonged where and all that. But, um, again, it's a wonderful project that we do annually. And I'm glad we... Uh, glad we reached it. We are now back doing live programming. And uh, today we do, again, what we do annually. We spend two days taking a look at the big stories of last year. And we invite some of our frequent guests to join us. So today, for instance, we're going to look at the 2023 in the field of bioethics. This is the whole field dealing with uh, euthanasia, Gender affirming care, uh, deals with abortion. So the world of bioethics. We take a look at what happened in the year 2023. We also take a look this today at the world of religious liberty. It turns out in America, anyways, it was a good year for religious liberty. Andrea Pachadi Bear will be joining me. Uh, she's a legal analyst with ew 10 News. We're also going to take a look at religious persecution around the world, where we have two areas of focus in particular that were bad last year. We have Nicaragua uh, and Nigeria, both um, have clear instances of persecution, and the uh, world authorities need to take a look at that. Uh, so we're going to spend time with Ed Clancy uh, from to the Church in Need. That's coming up. The second hour of today's program, Matthew Bunsen joins us to look back on a very busy year in Church news. I mean, we've got go back. Well, we have the document uh, that was released during Advent, uh, Fiducia Supplicans. Uh, We have the Synod on Synodality to look at. You may remember it was the death of, of Pope Benedict XVI that took place on, I think, New Year's Eve last year. Uh, We have the Eucharistic Revival that was getting uh, up and started, and then we've got uh, lots of other stories, too, about the new anthropology the Germans are uh, suggesting.
3: But first, uh, let's get today's headlines with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 3rd. It's the feast of the most holy name of Jesus. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. An Italian priest has been excommunicated by his local bishop for saying in a homily that Pope Francis is not the Pope and calling him a usurper. The Diocese of Livorno issued a decree yesterday that Father Ramon Gadetti publicly committed a schismatic act during Mass, leading to an automatic excommunication. The local bishop informed the diocese that Catholics are not to attend any Masses celebrated by the excommunicated priest, citing Canon 751, which defines schism as the refusal of submission to the Supreme Pontiff or of communion with the members of the Church subject to him. Legal eagles are working around the clock with the imminent release of nearly 150 names in the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking case. The billionaire killed himself in 2019 after being charged with child sex trafficking in New York with most of the crimes taking place at his mansion in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The name associated with Epstein over the years allegedly involve American billionaires and some high-profile politicians there may be a new antibiotic that can treat a dangerous bacteria resistant to most current medicines researchers from Harvard University and a Swiss healthcare company say they've developed an antibiotic that can effectively kill the bacteria according to the CDC the bacteria can cause serious and potential deadly lung urinary tract and blood infections and the US national debt has topped 34 trillion dollars for the first time in history New data from the Treasury Department shows the national debt reached an historic high on Friday afternoon. That figure is expected to nearly double in size over the next 30 years. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. As we take a look back at the year 2023, we start out looking at the field of bioethics with Wes Smith. Wes is chair and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. He's a consultant to the Patients' Rights Council. He's also the host of the Human Eyes podcast. He's the author of 13 books, including Culture of Death, The Age of Do-Harm Medicine, and you can follow him on Twitter at the The Wesley J. Smith, and check out his articles at National Review, free, First Things, and and more. Wes, good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Happy New Year. And to you, too. Let's take a look at uh, the, the big news in bioethics last year. What do you... Is there one story in particular that characterizes the year?
4: I think all the stories kind of come together with this idea of anything goes. That is the... Um, prior restraints we had in law and in people's personal morality are eroding. And you're finding that increasingly radical uh, um, areas of activity, ranging from euthanasia to very radical reproductive technologies, are moving forward with little resistance, and uh, and also um, uh, with regard to abortion. So it's, um, it's a situation in which... Uh, 20 or 30 years ago you had um barriers to some of these more radical approaches and I think those barriers have have been uh, pretty well wiped out now not everything has gone as bad as I think it will go yet yeah but I don't see uh restraint uh, as a a major force in the uh, in the bioethical field anymore
2: well let's let's start with this uh story about scientists um close to creating human embryos from stem cells um you know yeah. this this is claims like this have been made in the past so bring us up to date
4: well uh, it looks like uh using human cells they have created uh, what they call embryo like models um uh and then they say well they're not really embryos because uh, sperm and, and egg were not used what was hap- what happened is that they used um Induce pluripotent stem cells to change those cells into an embryo-like structure Mm -hmm. that then creates uh, cells and so forth. But the the, the problem with the pluripotent
2: stem these pluripotent stem cells are pretty malleable, right?
4: Yes, they can become any tissue, and apparently they've learned how to create a situation where it looks like an embryo has been created. That is a you know a one celled embryo that will then divide like a normal embryo. But they're saying that um, they're saying that uh these are not really embryos because there's no sperm and egg. Well human cloning doesn't have a sperm and egg and those are really embryos. Mm. So the question isn't uh isn't whether or not there was sperm and egg. The question is whether these new newly created entities are organisms it seems to me in terms of morality if they're not organisms if they're just cells in a dish well that's one thing if they are organisms that makes them nascent human beings yeah and we now can create human beings what's called asexually that is without the gametes or the egg and sperm uh from male and female So this is something that that needs watching. But but as with much of biotechnology, you don't have any real attempt to regulate the field. Everything is voluntary guidelines, which are worth their paper. They're written on Mm -hmm. with regard to uh, uh, this kind of research. Uh, They used to have what was called the 14-day rule meaning they would not take these experiments beyond 14 days of an embryo's uh, development. The 14-day rule was always made to be destroyed once they could actually keep these uh, embryos beyond 14 days, yeah. and that has yeah. happened. There are no more limits and so forth. I think another important story is euthanasia, particularly in Canada. Well, before
2: before where, we go there, was, yes. I just want Sorry. to know... This this proc, this uh, models, uh, this embryo models are being talked about. Yeah. Can these things be used for fetal farming?
4: Well, if they're human organisms, it would seem they could. That is that you would be able to create, uh, let's say they are organisms. You would create these um, asexually made embryos, uh, develop them until the point where uh, you would have to put them in an artificial womb or implant them in a woman's body. Um, we do not yet have the artificial womb for human beings, but that's being developed very quickly. They've been uh, gestating animals and these things, uh, and, and that's a possibility. So if we do not have a moral restraint or regulatory restraint on using nascent human life uh, as uh, in experiments, which we really don't, uh, there's some funding restraints, but there isn't much in terms of uh, practical restraints, mm. then we could very easily end up with fetal farms. And uh, and let me just point out what Vermont's law has recently uh, created. Vermont recently legalized abortion through the ninth month, but it also added a provision that said, no fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus has any rights. So that that's not in context of saying... In it, while developing in a woman's body, it just says they have no rights. So, if we ever get to the place where you could uh, gestate, let's say a fetus, whether created uh, through IVF or through one of these novel uh, uh, methods, then you could have fetal farming. Wow. You could use these tissues in experiments, at least in Vermont, because yeah. they'd have no, no rights. No rights. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well,
2: that's the front end of life. Let's go to the the back end of life. Let's talk about
4: euthanasia. They get you coming and going, don't they? (laughs) Well, euthanasia in Canada shows you where this will lead. I mean, the Canadians legalized euthanasia after a court ruling in, I believe it was 2015, maybe 2016, and originally, it was only supposed to be for people whose deaths were reasonably foreseeable. well, that that was a you know broad definition. You could drive a hearse through it. But then they uh, moved away from that, and now people with disabilities can be euthanized. people with um, the feral elderly can be euthanized. people with chronic diseases can be euthanized. And later this year, and it was supposed to be last year, but they put it off a year, the mentally ill can be euthanized. Canada has conjoined euthanasia with organ harvesting. In fact in Ontario if you uh, ask for, to be euthanized and the doctor finds that you're qualified you will then they the doctor will then contact the organ donation organization that's in charge in Ontario who will contact that will contact the patient saying can we have your liver I mean, this can lead yeah. to people being euthanized for the purpose of creating yeah. a greater good than they think their lives are worth. You've had um, uh, you know, joint euthanasia of elderly people in Canada, as well as in the Netherlands and in uh, Belgium, by the way. Um, you've had uh, people with disabilities saying they want to be euthanized because they don't have the ability to get uh, support services, but they can get euthanasia very quickly. There was a woman, a man, I'm sorry, uh, who was euthanized because he was unable to get an oncologist soon enough to help him. And another woman was euthanized because it took so long to get an oncologist, her cancer came, went to the point where it was no longer, uh, uh, you know, not treatable, but uh, to give her extra life. Yeah. So yeah. you find in Canada, people can't get good medical care, but they can get euthanasia pretty readily. Oh, good and be. of course, they're our closest cultural cousins. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it really has a problem. And here in the United States, the assisted suicide advocates are pushing forward in Minnesota, New York, Connecticut, and other places, as well as liberalizing our existing state assisted suicide um, licenses. Um, I understand Cuba legalized euthanasia, too. Yes. Yes. There's no human rights in terms of life, but you could die. You have a right to die. Great. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh what is somewhat of a good news
2: story and that is the pushback against gender affirming care.
4: Yeah, this is um the, the uh we'll see how this plays out. Um in the United States, uh, we have one of the most radical uh, official promotions for doing things such as giving 14-year-old girls who feel they are boys mastectomies, which is happening. Uh uh, Puberty blocking, which can cause uh, terrible bone problems and other issues. Uh, Rarely, but it does happen on occasion, even genital surgeries. Uh, And you have uh, uh, very ideological medical associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics saying, this is the only way to go. And the Biden administration saying, this is the only way to go. There was a recent article in Pediatrics, which is the um, AAP's uh, journal, basically saying that if you do not go along with gender-affirming care and states that actually try to stop it are are abusing and neglecting children. But what they never talk about is that in Europe, they're going in a different direction in many countries. The United Kingdom, which used to have wild gender-affirming care, has almost totally backed off on it, called it dangerous, said that a lot of children, when they believe they're the uh, sex they were not born, that that's transitory. Um, Norway has pushed back, has pulled way back. Finland has pulled way back. France has pulled way back. Denmark has pulled way back. And these are not exactly. Um, New Zealand has pulled back. These are not Bible Belt countries. Right, right. Hell, yeah. You know, these are countries that have looked at the at the data and they said the support the the studies that supported doing this are very meager in terms of their proof, but the potential harm is very real, and you cannot call yourself a scientific journal and just promote one side of what remains a robust argument in terms of science. So the science is not settled about this. There is major pushback, uh, in, um, many countries. Uh, the, uh, the approach taken in this country is entirely ideological because you it pretends that the other stuff isn't happening. And so uh, the issue still remains contested. And, and I don't know how it will end up, but I'm very displeased that uh, places like California, for example, have basically created the, uh, themselves into um, uh, gender um uh sanctuary states uh transgender sanctuary states so that if a child uh is let's say with a parent in texas who says i'm not going to do transition uh procedures and that child runs away or the one of the other parent takes the child to california california won't honor the texas child custody order and will even allow um these decisions to be made against parental permission so this is a very contentious and ideological circumstance and and it's uh, i it'll be very interesting to see how the next year plays out
2: yeah uh again in the countries that you mentioned they are pushing back against uh, these kind of practices especially with adolescents and yes. um, apparently the united states hasn't caught up with finland yet so Wes, great talking with you. Thanks for your help. Thanks, Al, very much.
5: Father Benedict
6: Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we got to tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't want to go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't want to go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't want to go to a Baptist church and find out that they're having Mass. We've got to be honest to ourselves. We've got to be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics. There are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God and the name of Christ, and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall not
7: take my name in vain. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Remember the song, You Gotta Have Hope? All You Really Need Is Hope? Well, it's not all you need, but it is one of the three theological virtues. The Catholic Catechism tells us that hope helps us desire heaven and eternal life as our happiness. We trust in Jesus' promise while relying not just on our own strengths, but with the assistance extended by grace from the Holy Spirit. Hope keeps discouragement at bay and sustains us in times of abandonment. It preserves us from selfishness by leading us to the happiness that flows from charity. Christian hope unfolds from Jesus' preaching of the Beatitudes, which raises our hope to heaven as the new promised land. The Catechism says hope is expressed and nourished in prayer, especially the Our Father, the summary of everything that hope leads us to desire. This is Peggy Stanton and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
1: Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate or estate planning? St Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877 Life US1.
8: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit:
9: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in? There are options you can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families.
6: Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
10: Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith? your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week.
7: The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get
9: to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the
7: enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN.
3: Live truth. Live Catholic.
11: With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Religious liberty, uh, again, a field that we want to stay uh, certainly aware of. Um, There have been many threats to religious liberty uh, over this last generation, in many cases, uh, we have turned back some of those threats. And we're going to take a look at last year, 2023. Was it a good year for religious liberty? My guest will be Andrea pachati Bear. She's legal analyst for EWTN News, and she also directs the Conscience Project. Uh, she's a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, and you can follow her on Twitter at bearpachadi Pachati, and visit conscience-project.org. We'll have those uh contact information available for you in the Crested Guest Archives. Andrea, good to have you back. Thanks.
9: Uh Al, thank you so much. And you're one of my best PR guys. Thank you so much for <laughs> for promoting our work. It's really it's really a great treat to be with you again.
2: Well how was twenty twenty three? Was it a good year for religious liberty?
9: It was. I mean it was a good year at the Supreme Court, but it was okay. it was the time before the cases got to the Supreme Court that should concern us. And okay. Religious freedom, which has normally not been a partisan issue. It's been not even a bipartisan issue. It was a non-partisan issue for years, now has really become kind of a a political football, I guess. These treasured freedoms that we have, um, both to the free exercise of religion and to free expression, um, kind of a part of our free speech guarantee.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes, we certainly have to be uh, vigilant uh, in this area. Uh, we had one case last year involving Gerald Groff, uh, a former mailman from rural Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about that story and its outcome.
9: You know, this is a fascinating case, um, mainly because the Supreme Court's vindication of Gerald Groff, the mailman, was unanimous. Yeah, um, that's and great. And yeah. Right. It's um it's really quite wonderful and, and if you remember a few years ago a similar unanimous decision um was granted to Catholic social services in Philadelphia. Right. right. So when it when it comes to religious freedom at least our current Supreme Court does have one mind in many, many of the cases that have come before it. Mm-hmm. Um Gerald Groff was, as you mentioned, a rural a mailman in rural Pennsylvania. Um, his post office started receiving had a deal with Amazon, um, where they were going to deliver packages on Sundays. And I'm old enough to remember that the the post office didn't deliver things on Sunday, right. but now they do. Mm-hmm. Um and So um, he shared, he's a strict Sabbatarian Christian, shared with his postmaster that working on Sundays was was violating his um, religious beliefs. And at first, the postmaster accommodated his schedule um, by scheduling him um, on other days Mm -hmm. and putting colleagues on, on Sundays. But then people started to grumble, and rather than stand up for... The protections to um, his free exercise of religion that are actually grounded in federal law as well as in the constitution um to to have a a right to accommodate your your religious exercise. Um, he was He was disciplined. And eventually he quit and went to court and said that the u s. post office was not living up to its obligations under the Title Seven, which is our federal laws related to employment discrimination. And the court agreed with with Mr. Groff.
2: <laughs> so so they, it's a, it's a unanimous decision um, saying that, again, that uh, in this case the U.S. Postal Service had been in the wrong by denying him a religious accommodation. Well, that is good news.
9: It's great news, and also I want to give a shout out to the author of the court's opinion. Was Justice Samuel Alito? Sure, folks. Hopefully, remember was the author of the important Dobbs decision mm-hmm. that overturned Roe, um, and and in this decision, not only was it a win for Gerald Groff, but really for all employees that are covered by Title Seven, because there was a misunderstanding of the court's prior precedent and this supreme court clarified that when title 7 says there's a duty to accommodate unless there's a significant burden the significant burden on a business actually means something yeah. and um prior to this decision it was misunderstood as being you know just like a trifle and now the supreme court said no 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 it's got to be something serious and it can't just be because other Colleagues are bothered.
12: Yeah,
2: it has yeah. to
9: be something that affects the actual functioning operation of the, of the business.
2: Yeah, with well, substantial increase in costs. Uh, yeah, to yeah to consumers or to the the business itself. Yeah, okay, very good. Uh, there was another case this summer where the court ruled for the First Amendment's free speech guarantee, and that's the case of Lori Smith. Let's talk about that. Yeah.
9: Yeah, no, I love Lori Smith's case. This is three oh three Creative. Um Three O three Creative is Lori Smith's business. It's named after the area code in Denver, which is three oh three. And um she is a website designer and wanted to create wedding websites, which apparently are things. Yep. And um and but because she's a, a devout Christian, she didn't want to create wedding websites for same-sex weddings Mm -hmm. um, in Colorado and was concerned because her state has an anti-discrimination law that's really broadly defined to encompass sexual orientation and gender identity. Again, this may be familiar um, to uh, many of your listeners, Al, because it's the same law that involved Masterpiece, Cake Shop, and Mm -hmm. Jack Phillips. Right, um, And so uh, Lori went to court and said, hey, can we get some clarification here um, that I won't get into trouble with the state government and be found in violation of this Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act? Um, she lost in the lower courts. And in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal court reviewing cases out of Colorado, even said that she would be forced to not only create wedding websites for same-sex couples, but she couldn't even put a note on her website itself saying, you know, hey, I believe in um, marriages between a man and a woman. So it was definitely a um, kind of case of compelled speech, Mm -hmm. as well as interfering with her religious freedom um, and exercise and beliefs. The Supreme Court, it wasn't unanimous, but it was close. It was a six-to-three decision. This time, um, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion and really vindicating, again, um, free speech, uh, which was the the issue that the court was looking at, um, in a very robust way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was important. It was um, very clear and very consistent with what I like to call an originalist understanding of the First Amendment.
2: Yeah. The, the objection of those who uh, were in the minority, what, what was a, their fundamental objection to this?
9: You know, a lot of it stems from a misunderstanding about public accommodations laws and, um, and religious objections. The idea that the lower courts had was that, um, you know, if, if you allow a religious American to opt out. Of providing a certain service, it's it's a form of bigotry, a form of discrimination. Yeah, um, and, so, and
2: like like we're not going to serve blacks in our exactly. in our yeah in our uh,
9: exactly. And and Justice Gorsuch said, you know, these public accommodations laws are really important, and we can see in our country's history to address profound systemic racism, mm-hmm. they were important, but this went... Too far. Yeah, it expanded not only into areas where there isn't that kind of historic uh, discrimination, as there is with r- racial discrimination, but also imposing um, and interfering with speech, forcing people to use their creative talents um, not only at odds with their beliefs, but in conflict with their religious convictions yeah.
2: as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what's come, upcoming. Uh, do we have some good cases to look forward to this year?
9: You know, there are some good cases. That the every every case that the Supreme Court reviews is a good case <laughs> because, because it's got national significance and mm-hmm. there's some need that we you know the highest court in the land um, can offer to clarify for the the lower courts and for the country. Um, there are no cases that are specifically religion cases, but there are cases that touch upon religious interests. So there's an issue involving what's called chevron deference, and that's just a, a legal phrase for giving a lot of deference to administrative agencies in charge of implementing certain federal laws. And the Supreme Court has seen that that's given more power to the executive than really is envisioned by the Mm -hmm. Constitution. If there's a lack of clarity in something that Congress has passed, well, Congress should make things more clear. And um, and, and I'm sure, again, you and your listeners remember the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate, the Affordable Care Act's gender-transgender mandate. These were kind of uh, liberties taken by the administrative state to go beyond Congress's intent yes. in passing the, the Affordable Care Act. So um, getting rid of this undue deference to the administrative state will really kind of rebalance our um, our system of government and make Congress be more clear. If they yeah. want something, then you got to say it.
2: Yeah, yeah, don't uh, these federal agencies... Can often exploit vague language uh, to go beyond Congress's original intent. So, uh, this is good. Uh, do, do we have, or do we have uh, any of our religious liberty advocates, advocacy organizations, uh, filing amicus briefs on this?
9: Yeah, you know, one of my favorite groups of course is Beckett Law. Yeah, right. Um and and they're just fabulous. They were, you know, represented the Little Sisters of the Poor, and they also were successful represented Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia, and they filed briefs not only in this case but in a few others, basically adding that important friend of the court contribution. Um, to looking at cases that don't look like they involve religion and saying, no, this really does. And minority religious interests oftentimes need to be considered. Um, and there's another case that I didn't mention, Al, that deals with the issue of mootness. Um, when the government changes its policy, if there's been a violation of religious freedom or free speech, Oftentimes the government will say, "Well, we just changed our policy, so no harm, no foul yeah and Beckett has really pointed out and saying, though no, you know when you when you um, suffer an injury to your constitutional rights, that's something that that needs to be um, remedied, and just a, a momentary change in policy isn't a guarantee that it's not going to happen again. Yeah
2: okay. Well, I wish we had more time, uh, Andrea, but uh, we'll get together again soon. Thank you.
9: I love that. Thanks, Alan. <laughs>
2: Andrea oh, Pachati Bears, legal analyst for UWT News. Uh, she does, again, great work. We love having her. And we want to make sure that you can follow follow her work. If you go to the Cresta Guest Archives, we've got the contact information there and in her projects, like the Conscience Project. So head on over to net.
1: The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
3: Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property, Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877 Life US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
0: We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's
13: MyCatholicHealthCare.com.
6: They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class.
3: EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic.
12: Dr.
11: Ray Garendi, what's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, "Well, the way kids are turning out nowadays," counting my blessings, parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22, but you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Taking a look at the year 2023, and we turn our attention to religious persecution around the world with Ed Clancy. Uh, he's Director of Outreach for Aid to the Church in Need. You can follow their work at churchinneed.org. And Ed, good to have you back. Thanks. Thank you, Al. It's always good to talk with you, even, again, on a very difficult subject. We, we, <laughs> when we talk, it's usually tough, tough stuff. I agree. But yeah, um, unfortunately, two two nations that were especially uh, a problem last year were Nicaragua and Nigeria. Tell me about Nicaragua.
14: Well, Nicaragua is um, like a slow simmer now. I, I think you know, obviously there was a lot of activity with the arrest of the bishop um, and some of the priests, and then there was a sort of a little bit of a reprieve with some of the, some of the people who arrested being released, but mm-hmm. uh, Bishop Alvarez is still in prison. And recently another bishop was, um, you know, taken into custody. And it's a very difficult topic for both, you know, the church and to for the church in need, because we have to be careful that we don't make things worse for them.
2: Yeah, so. yeah. So how does that, I mean, who, who negotiates these kind of things? Uh, this is, you know, sort of,
14: you know, the old saying above my pay grade, but these <laughs> things are being dealt with. Uh, at levels that you know where they need to be dealt with, and hopefully there'll be some positive development
2: okay so yeah. we we 've got competent authorities uh, putting some pressure on Nicaragua to do the right thing
14: yeah, yeah, i mean there 's always always work behind the scenes there 's always communication yeah. um, so we just like you know hope and pray that in the end, you know Bishop Alvarez is released and uh, is less of this happening.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um to Nigeria. Uh my goodness. Yeah. Now that's yeah. that's a brutal area. Um talk to me. We've got uh again one uh one monk uh, saying I am prepared to die a martyr uh, apparently after the murder of a brother monk. Um what can you tell me about that case? Well, I mean, it, it's indicative of the faith of
14: Nigerians, and especially the religious in Nigeria. Um, because of all of the work that Aid to the Church has done to help in the country, uh, I've gotten to know some of the priests and nuns and bishops, and each of them has a very strong sense of you know, where they are in the world and what sacrifice might be asked of them. Yeah. Uh, a priest friend of mine said that he begins each day, saying a prayer that to God today, today I'm cold, let me be worthy of a, a martyr's death. Wow. And that's every day, you know, that's essentially yeah. how you have to start each day. And at the end of the year, Christmas time, it's almost like clockwork. Like you can put it on the calendar that there's going to be in a region of Nigeria where there's going to be an attack. And of course there was, there was right the days before Christmas and up to Christmas day in plateau state, you know, the numbers again, I'm always hesitant to give these numbers and say it's outrageous. 300 people, 200 people. Yeah. Uh, because we lose the fact that those are 200 individuals. Yeah. You know, those are names, those are families, those are communities. And, um, you know, Plateau State is among the more or less violent areas uh, in Nigeria, and oh. yet it was attacked and it's put under the title of, you know, the herder farmer. Um, conflict, and yet, as Father Andrew, who is a you know partner of AIDS in Church and Church Need in the region, said, nobody was killed the Christians. Yeah. So, yeah. in a conflict, on one side suffers yeah. all the consequences. Is is it really a conflict? Yeah. Or is it more uh, terrorist activity? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, Nigeria in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, by our estimates, had no, above seventy six hundred. Uh, Christians killed for their faith. Oh. In 2023, the numbers aren't in, but as of, for example, just the beginning of April, that number was already over a 1,000. Oh. So, you know, these, again, just put the numbers out, in the last 14 or 15 years, Nigeria has been the leading country of Christian martyrdom in the world almost every year. And if we go back to the days of ISIS when they were attacking Syria and um Iraq, mm-hmm. even those, the 2014, 15, the, that region, Nigeria still suffered more Christians persecuted, more acts of terrorism against Christians than even those places, ISIS. And those were headlines. And now we have a country at Christmas time where, you know, not that far from the capital district and the plateau state in the center of the country, um, maybe 300 people died and hundreds more injured. And maybe thousands are displaced. And uh, later on this month, we'll have a bishop from Benway. In Benway, there are more
2: than one and a half million displaced Christians. In the uh, as far as the attacks go, those predictably are associated with Christmas. Is that right?
14: Yeah. Well, major holidays, we, we saw that. Easter. That's right. I remember. Uh, that, no. There was the, the terrible attacks uh, in Benway on um, the the camps, the place where the people were relocated. So even even in, in, in quote unquote this herd of farmer conflict, they're no longer on their farmland. They're no longer occupying you know this territory that the the cattle theoretically need to graze, and yet they were still attacked. Uh, is, um,
2: it, is 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 the government unable? or unwilling to protect its citizens?
14: Yes. I think it's both. Both. I really do. I I really think it's a combination of not willing to do what needs to be done and unable to muster the courage to stand up to the real aggressors. Um, So it is that working, and then you have a certain sense of this is the way it is, you know, yeah. sort of yeah. the way things go and we're not going to change anything that, you know, in a sense is the beginning of of this almost despair. Um, but I, I have to say that if there's any people in the world that are more resilient than Nigerians, please show them to me. Because when uh, the Pew Research uh, did their study on tenants at mass, they're number one in the world with both percentage of of people attending Mass and frequency. Uh, both. So over 90% of the country attends Mass regularly. And they have, again, a higher percentage of multiple attendees per week of any country in the world. And, and that's in that territory, in that environment.
2: And these are the people who wake up every morning and pray that they would yes. be worthy of martyrdom. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, It's hard for us to imagine uh, that kind of commitment uh, over such a wide body of people. Are the Fulani primarily responsible for these deaths?
14: Uh, The ones, yes. The ones in Plateau State, sure. That's, um, again, credible sources. And it's the same, you know, the same MO method of attack, um, you know, sort of grouping of the attackers. How they come into an area, you know, they come in at night or, you know, when it's barely light, they uh, start attacking houses and push people out into the common areas and then force them out into the bush. And usually there's, you know, killing parties waiting for them. Um, And this is just the way it's been, unfortunately, for a long time. And then as you asked the question about the government response, it was hours and hours late and even days late because it started, I believe, on the 23rd and ended up on the ended. the last one was, like, on the 26th. Mm. So you had multiple days of this happening. And, of course, you know, for us that live in major cities or near major cities, you used to have police response within minutes. Now, you can understand there's a delay. But when you see something like this happening, and especially in a country where the police are governed completely by the federal government, there should have been some sort of military action. Yeah. I mean, literally roll troops in, roll whatever you need in, uh, declare martial law, even if you have to yeah. close off these areas, start, you know, uh, uh, filtering out who, who might be responsible. And I'm sure there's areas, aerial surveillance and drones and things like that, that could be used. And it just doesn't seem to happen. So,
2: yeah. Um, uh, in Pakistan, um, yes. we have also attacks on churches, um, mm-hmm. I understand that um, at least 26 churches were burned uh, last summer, anyways. And, yeah, in August. Yeah, and how's that? How's that shaping up now? I mean, does that continue? No, it it hasn't. There's been
14: a, I would say, a, some sort of a diminishment in the violence, and there is from the church a sense of uh, hope or optimism in that this was the first time after these kind of attacks that there were actually major Muslim leaders speaking out on behalf of the Christian community. Good. Um, That is good, and it's a positive step. Um, The unfortunate thing, though, is in Pakistan, the system of justice is you arrest someone, you make a show of it, it gets headlines, and then the case just seems to disappear. Obviously, these cases haven't really run their full course yet, so we don't know if that's going to be the case, but that's What has happened in the past whether it's you know men abducting young girls and essentially uh reaping them and treating them like uh, sex slaves Mm. and quote under the the guise of marriage uh then being arrested for violating one of the laws and of course it's more than rude but more than a slap on the wrist and you know um maybe a fine and they go back out as if nothing happened and essentially as heroes so in this case the the group that Started the attacks, essentially it came from, you know, from the houses of prayer, from the Muslim houses of prayer, from the um, leaders in a certain community there in Jarlanwala, that they were told to go out and do this. Um, you know, you would think that immediately would be your first action as a government. Yeah. And again, maybe it, maybe it will be, but it hasn't yet. It really hasn't come into any sort of real action against these people or the, the actors themselves.
2: Is this is this a way for outlawed political parties uh, or people on the outside to gain public support? I mean, are these are these attacks on Christians? You mentioned that some of these people get arrested and then they're released, but they mm-hmm. get a lot of public applause for having gone after Christians. Um, is this being used to gain political legitimacy by some groups?
14: I, I think it might very well be. Oftentimes, you know, from our way of thinking, we don't necessarily join religion and, and politics so intimately. Right. Um, but there it's not like that. So the the power of these actions, the, the fear that you can instill, uh does give certain leaders the the ability to um you know coordinate control, if you yeah. want to call it that. Yeah. So these it's, it's very possible that this is a way of it being done, or it really could just be that it's groups that seek to uh, extinguish any any Christian presence in Pakistan, um, Pakistan. again, famously was separated from India yeah. because of religious issues. That's
2: right; it was to be and a Muslim state.
14: Pakistani, right? Exactly, and the Pakistani people were generally the Muslims living in a Hindu majority country and separated because of it. And now, you know, treating the minority in their country the same way or even worse, yeah, um, is not necessarily you know true to the the fact or at least the the stated founding of of Pakistan.
2: Yeah. Oh, while we're talking about uh, Pakistan and uh, in India, let's uh, ask: Is how are things in India? I know they've become a place of concern recently. Yes,
14: very much. Uh, again, there's a sort of meshing of of nationalism and religion and identity um in india has moved up in, in sort of uh, prominence the bjp the party in power that has you know significant power in almost every single region has identified itself completely with this sort of hindu nationalism and again one of the, the hallmarks of this type of philosophy is to treat all others as adversaries or enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, there is, a, there is not a good environment um, for the Christian community in certain areas. And in India, you, you compound the fact that even though the, the caste system does not officially exist, it does, in a sense, in, in, within the culture. Mm-hmm. And Christians tend to be of the lower caste, because the Christian missionaries, the priests and those going in there, would help the poorest of the poor educate right. them, improve their lives, and of course now they even convert. Oh.
2: Ed, thanks so much. Again, how can people stay abreast of the work you do? Please visit churchinneed.org and pray for Nigeria. And keep up to date
14: on what's going on in these places so that you can keep people aware of it and also do something
2: positive. Thank you. Ed Clancy is Director of Outreach for Aid to the Church in Need.
5: Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio so when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secondary media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country and they're saying we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash. But the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitist, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as The Register and EWTN News Nightly and The World Over and Catholic News Agency and EWTN News In Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio.
11: Christ is the answer, with Father John Ricardo.
10: He always starts with the good things. You know, the seven letters to the churches and the book of Revelation is a great way to write letters to other people, by the way, or to have conversations with other people. You start with what's going well. You do this, this, and this really well. I love it. Thank you. Here's what you're lacking. And I think for many of us as men, what the Lord's communicating at that second part of the letter or the second part of the conversation is, here's what we're lacking. You don't ever spend enough time with me. You have no idea what I'm trying to offer you in the gift of my friendship. Or if you do, you don't make time for it. And if you would but come to me, I would change your life like that. But you don't come. Not with the regularity that I want you to come. Not with the ardor and the fervor and the passion that I want you to come. I have a hunch, more than a hunch, that's what he says to me. And I got a hunch that's what he would say to many of us.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and we continue our look at 2023. Next hour, Matthew Bunsen joins us. It was a very busy year uh, for the Catholic Church as an institution, again a global, international institution, and one of the big stories uh, that really started off the year was, you know, before the confetti had even stopped falling, we had the death of Pope Emeritus Benedict on New Year's Eve. And, uh, We're going to go from there all the way up to the release of Fiducia Supplicans. That is the document on blessings, or the declaration on blessings, the pastoral meaning of blessings. That was released on December 18th, right in the midst of Advent. Lots more to talk about, though.
1: from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thankful that you've joined me today and we're taking a look at the year 2023. This hour, our focus is on the church as institution The Catholic Church globally? What are some of the big stories associated with the Church? We know that, uh, of course, the Synod on Synodality uh, was one of the big stories. uh, At the close of the year, right in the middle of Advent, or actually right at the close of Advent, you had the publication of a declaration, a significant uh, document, uh, Fiducius Supplicans. Uh, This is on the Theology of Blessings, which is widely interpreted as uh, freedom for priests to, quote, bless um, couples in irregular relationships. By Generally, that means same-sex couples or and or those who are um, in a second marriage without uh, annulment. Uh, now, this is one of the big... <laughs> One of the big issues concerning this document, and it's that's ambiguity. Exactly why this is significant is unclear to many of us, <laughs> and I'll be issuing a commentary sometime soon on it, but today we talk it over uh, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen just to see how this document has been received uh, ag- around the globe, and you might be surprised that because, it, because the document is ambiguous, you've got a wide range of interpretation of it. We're also going to talk about the passing of uh, not only uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict, but also of the great Cardinal uh, George Pell, uh, who uh, passed away this year. And then uh, there's much more. We've had the continual lead-up to the Eucharistic revival, the appointment of new cardinals, Uh, The FBI probes into, quote, traditionalist Catholics. All those things coming up in my conversation with Matthew Bunsen. But first, uh, let's get the headlines from
3: Dan McGraw. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 3rd. It's the Feast of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at charitymobile.com. An Italian priest has been excommunicated by his local bishop for saying in a homily that Pope Francis is not the Pope and calling him a usurper. The Diocese of Livorno issued a decree yesterday that Father Ramon Gadetti publicly committed a schismatic act during Mass, leading to an automatic excommunication. The local bishop informed the diocese that Catholics are not to attend any Masses celebrated by the excommunicated priest, citing Canon 751, which defines schism as the refusal of submission to the Supreme Pontiff or of communion with the members of the Church subject to him. Legal Eagles are working around the clock with the imminent release of nearly 150 names in the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking case. The billionaire killed himself in 2019 after being charged with child sex trafficking in New York with most of the crimes taking place at his mansion in the US Virgin Islands. The name associated with Epstein over the years allegedly involve American billionaires and some high-profile politicians. There may be a new antibiotic that can treat a dangerous bacteria resistant to most current medicines. Researchers from Harvard University and a Swiss healthcare company say they've developed an antibiotic that can effectively kill the bacteria. According to the CDC, the bacteria can cause serious and potential deadly lung, urinary tract, and blood infections. And the U.S. national debt has topped $34 trillion for the first time in history. New data from the Treasury Department shows the national debt reached an historic high on Friday afternoon. That figure is expected to nearly double in size over the next 30 years. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Crest. As we look back at the news of the Catholic Church uh, 2023, we've got with us Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. Uh, Matthew is the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English language biography of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and much more. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen. And Matthew, good to have you back. Happy New Year. Yeah, same to you and a blessed Christmas season. Yeah. Well, let's let's go. This was a, a especially interesting year, I think, for the church, the institutional church. A lot went on, um, but uh, we should lead off with a you know remembering Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth, um, who died before uh, the confetti even stopped falling. So that's right. Uh, last yes. New Year's Eve. Yeah.
8: Yes, he did. And uh, uh, the funeral was such a remarkable experience. Uh, I can remember the fog of the day where you could not even see the dome of St. Peter's. And I I think it uh, fit the mood of uh, many of the the people who were taking part, because he had been retired, or at least resigned, and and living uh, in the Vatican Gardens for a decade. Um, And yet when he passed, it, it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone, but when he did pass, I think everyone was still surprised yeah. uh, when the news came.
2: Yeah. Uh, it, 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 you know, many of us truly uh, loved him and had been imp- impressed and influenced by his many writings and his manner of life. Um, in spite of the silly uh, caricature of uh, right. you know the the the, the Rottweiler the <laughs> the watchdog uh, of doctrine he was cardinal yes <laughs> right <laughs> he he was if again read him, read him he was very generous uh even to those with whom he disagreed and um he wasn't he wasn't afraid to take on uh issues of great concern within the church and that's um, right yeah yeah,
8: I had uh, the the privilege of taking part uh, just the last over the last few days. It uh, was on the 30th and 31st of uh, December uh, of a conference in Rome that was held, basically looking at his legacy. Oh, and uh, I had the, the again the, the great privilege of being one of the speakers, but then also. Whoa. Having a sit down uh, with Archbishop Gerhard Genswein, who had been uh, first Cardinal Ratzinger's, and then when he was elected Pope, Pope Benedict XVI's personal secretary. And other speakers included Cardinal Gerhard Müller, uh, Father Federico Lombardi, who had been at one point the Vatican spokesperson for Benedict. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Vincent Toomey is one of the greatest living experts. Yes, in I've interviewed him. And it was Yeah. It was, it was an opportunity to look back uh, on this one year that has now passed since uh, the the departure of Pope Emeritus Benedict Pope Benedict XVI. But also uh, one of the points I, I tried to make is that we are now just at the very start of assessing his legacy and the gifts that he left to the church in his writings and in his theology. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting how, at a conference like that, things can happen organically. But the, one of the questions that kept coming up was whether or not Pope Benedict would ever possibly be declared a doctor of the Church.
2: Sure, sure.
8: And, of course, there are three requirements, though the most obvious being a formal announcement, usually by the Pope or an ecumenical council. But to get there, you need two other things. You need uh, the Declaration of sanctity. In other mm-hmm. words, that uh, uh, you need to canonize this person. Yeah. The other is the eminence of teaching. That uh, Did this person leave a body of teachings that uh, has directly influenced and shaped uh, and aided the Church in a significant way? And I think uh, the second question about eminence of teaching, there is no question Right uh, about the importance of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the other question about his uh, holiness, I think, uh, will depend on a lot of other things. Uh, but I, I do think that this really is now the start of an assessment of his contributions to the life and, and thinking and spirituality of the Church.
2: Uh, you know, I have to ask this question... Because I know it's, it's people are thinking it. Um, was there discussion at this conference about how uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI would have regarded some of the Holy See's moves in the last year, especially um, fiducia supplicants?
14: Uh, no,
8: uh, that really didn't come up, and, okay. and partly because this was dedicated uh to this year that has passed uh and to the days that he passed his funeral and then his legacy yeah. i know that uh, there has been some discussion in recent days about uh, uh peter sebald i think it was uh yeah. his reflections that uh pro francis uh supposedly blindsided uh pope emeritus with uh, his traditionis custodes decree that sort of thing um but uh, in terms of this conference, no. It really wanted to be very positively focused yeah. on the, the legacy and helping people to understand, again, the the gifts that uh, Pope Benedict brought. And, and my particular, my small contribution, along with that Cardinal, much bigger contribution of Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, focused on Christ at the center of his theology. And in, sometimes I have the impression that that's kind of lost uh, in some of this discussion just for no other reason than just because of the sheer breadth of Benedict's writings yes. and his teachings. And yet, he has a very, I wouldn't say pietistic or simplistic faith, quite the opposite. But he had a profound relationship, a friendship, yeah. discipleship with Jesus Christ. Well, I, and yeah. he can go all the way back to when he was a seven-year-old boy writing a letter to Jesus. And what does he ask for? He wants, he wanted a missile. And he wanted a chasuble so he could pretend to say mass. <laughs> uh, but he then, but the other thing, surprise, surprise, right? But the other big thing was he asked for Jesus's heart. He said, "I want the heart of Jesus." Yeah, I don't know many seven-year-olds who are thinking along those lines. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but you can tie it all the way back to the, the oh. last known words of Benedict the Sixteenth or Joseph Ratzinger. What was it? The uh, as Archbishop Gainsfren says. He said, uh, "Signore, ti amo." Lord, I love you. Oh, oh! It it's profoundly <clears throat> simple, yeah, but profoundly uh, rich
2: yeah. in revealing yeah. this friendship, but also this intimacy that he had with the Lord. And his three-volume work, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He, he says he wrote it um, because he was pursuing. Uh, he wanted to see the face of Jesus, yes. and, and so he has. he's a brilliant scholar, but he has the heart of a, of a disciple, a devoted disciple of Jesus.
8: <laughs> yeah, and, and he writes in Deus Caritas that, that, that this isn't some ideal. This is having a personal encounter yeah. with someone, with yep. an event, with a person, and I think Deus Caritas Est, for me, is, is one of my favorite writings of his, because it, it is so deeply personal.
12: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, but I think you're also right, that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, written sort of across the drama of his pontificate, finished not too long before his, his retirement resignation. But then at the same time, how did he phrase it when he published it? He said, this is from Joseph Ratzinger, so you don't have to—you can take this as you want— you can you can feel be, feel free to criticize this. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. And so there was this humility about him too. Yep. That also undergirded so much of his work.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I his 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 loss is felt, and uh, you know the, the, there will always be second guesses about his resignation, um, but. It's you know you can only play the counterfactual game so long before you realize it's fruitless. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yes,
8: it, it will remain. I think um, he he was very clear as why he felt he needed to retire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Archbishop Gainswein said that uh, he was adamantly opposed to the whole idea of his retirement, uh, and yet in that very gentle, clear way of communicating. Uh Pope Benedict made it manifest that I am doing this. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And uh so we take him at his word that uh, he
2: retired, abdicated the papacy for the reasons that he had always stated. Yeah, I've al- I've always accepted those reasons. Yeah. Um his he but he made his resignation uh in a in a way that I think surprised a lot of people. It wasn't. It wasn't a grand announcement. It was a, kind <laughs> right. of a subtle reference in Latin. In when, Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I, and as as
8: was asked at the time, there weren't too many people in that room who understood exactly what he was saying. Right.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was that was just funny, almost delightful. I I don't know if he found it amusing. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, anyway. But also, a quintessential uh, Benedict,
8: too. Yeah. Because it, uh, it was very humble in how yeah. he announced it. But I think there were two things that, that, were, that really always jumped out at me. The first was, yes, he did it in Latin. Why? Because this is an official pronouncement. Yeah. And he understood that what he was doing, what he was saying, needed to be in the official language of the church. And so here was this announcement. So there could be no question, canonically or otherwise. Now, of course, when a pope resigns, it is simply accepted. There's, there's no one who accepts the resignation of the pope, it is simply done. But the other thing about that resignation uh, was that I think he did it with not a sense of humor, but I think he understood the titanic effect it was going to have. And by announcing it the way he did, I, I think he caught everyone by surprise. Mm hmm. Uh, but then let the shock sort of take care of itself rather than standing on the loggia
2: right, of St. Right. Peter's or just issuing some decree that went out around the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about the passing of a great one, uh, let's take a minute yeah. uh, about Cardinal Pell, um, who, uh, you know, died again uh, unexpectedly. Um, in fact, we're don't really have enough time to um, give him due notice in this hour so what we're going to have to do is take a break and come back but um, he, was, he was a giant and um, he, was. He, he was a man that many many of us looked to him uh, for clarity and uh, we'll, on the other side of the break we'll come back and continue our conversation with Dr. Matthew Bunsen uh, paying respects to uh, Cardinal Pell who again passed away unexpectedly this year the age of 81, um, back on January 10th. So, I'm Al Cresta, we'll be right back.
11: Christ is the answer,
3: with Father John Ricardo.
10: We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now. And I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half the Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have.
1: It's time for Family Man with
3: Dr. Gregory Popchuk. St. John Bosco once had a heavenly vision, telling him to reject harsh approaches to discipline and instead raise the children in his care with reason, religion, and loving-kindness. Today, we call his method Discipleship Discipline. It's a means of child-rearing that doesn't just focus on stopping bad behavior, but rather helps parents raise faithful kids who love God and lead virtuous Christian lives. Discipleship Discipline is great for kids, but it also helps parents experience and share God's love more effectively with their families. That's why discipleship discipline is such an important part of the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, a way of experiencing the faith as the source of the warmth in your home. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit catholiccounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life,
1: visit catholiccounselors.com. Maybe you've been hearing a
10: lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father
2: because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
3: Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property, Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877 Life US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at uh, the Church news from 2023, the big topics. Uh, last segment, we talked about the passing of Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, and uh, we also touched on uh, the passing of Cardinal Pell, and we'll spend a little more time on that right now. Um, you know, he, he was—there were great hopes, um, that he, when he was called to clean up the Vatican finances, that he yeah. would, um, that he would be able to accomplish that. Of course, he he was resisted uh, by uh, Cardinal Bichu, um you know, who I don't know for for reasons that may be relevant to his own, to Bichu's own uh, criminal behavior, um, you know. Macheu was the uh, that former deputy secretary of state. I mean, he was the third most powerful man in the Vatican, who again opposed Cardinal Pell in his attempt to clean up Vatican finances. Uh, he, why Pell was unable to accomplish it because of this resistance. And correct me if I'm wrong on this. He was unable to clean up the Vatican finances like he had hoped, because of the resistance from Pichu, but also because he was called back to Australia to stand trial. Is that right? Well, that's, that, that's
8: exactly right. The, the, he uh, was strikingly uh, one of the very early key figures in the pontificate of Pope Francis. Yeah, that uh, He appointed him, I think, as a member of the, the Council of Cardinals. Uh, he named him to the Secretary of the economy uh, so this is somebody who clearly uh, Pope Francis wanted to come in to help him uh, solve so many of the ongoing financial problems that yeah. the Vatican had now some of that uh, some of that work began under Pope Benedict but certainly one of the mandates of Pope Francis at the time of his election in March of 2013 was to take a hold of financial scandals and uh, the lack of transparency, and and really try to update Vatican finances. And that's where Pell, uh, who had served as the Archbishop of Sydney and was such a prominent international figure, certainly within the Church, uh, I think was somebody who was uh, ideally suited to
12: that. Mm
8: -hmm. What we saw almost immediately, however, from the time of his appointment in 2014, Uh, Was that uh, he faced all kinds of opposition. Yeah. And by 2017, he had to leave Rome, as you noted, uh, to go to Australia to defend his innocence on accusations of abuse. Yeah. And we know how that played out uh, in the most uh, horrendous fashion imaginable. But he was essentially sidelined then uh, for six years. uh from 2014 essentially to 2017 when he left and then uh he was finally acquitted in 2020 after 400 days in prison most of that in solitary confinement
2: wow well let's talk about bichu cardinal bichu who resisted his efforts at reform and bichu himself has now been convicted um uh, t- talk to me about this case. Yeah, this is uh, uh,
8: has been called the trial of the century, as you know. Uh, and what is uh, interesting about that is that uh, there had been trials of cardinals previously. Uh, this wasn't the very, very first time that this had happened. However, this was unique in the sense that he was the first cardinal to be sentenced by a Vatican court uh, since the creation of the Vatican as a city-state in 1929, and uh, he is somebody who fell subject uh, to this type of a trial because Pope Francis made some significant changes uh, back in 2021, uh, basically saying that, no, Vatican official cardinals are no longer going to be a subject to special privileges when it came to accusations of this type. So it was, I think, part of uh, Pope Francis's ongoing efforts to reform a lot of the financial irregularities mm-hmm. that were taking place. This one, though, was uh, massive in the scale, in the sense of it involved embezzlement, it involved malfeasance of money, uh, it involved land deals all the way back in, uh, I think it was Sloan Street in London, uh, it dragged in the Secretariat of State uh, because so many of these deals had to be approved by them. Pope Francis himself became something of a peripheral witness because uh, Cardinal Bethew, or we should say probably former Cardinal Bethew had um, claimed that uh, Pope Francis would be able to confirm many of the things, including a telephone conversation uh, that subsequently really didn't uh, play out in court in quite the way I think that he thought it would. All of these uh, aspects came together in this trial, and I think it did one other thing. There were serious questions when the trial began, when the whole investigation began. Would this Vatican Court, which is new, be able to plow the resources in that were needed? Would it be able to guide a trial of this complexity? And I think looking back, the answer has turned out to be yes, it can. Mm -hmm. This is also a shot across the bow for many officials in uh, the Roman Curia today, uh, who could find themselves subsequently subjects of investigation and potentially trial uh, for similar financial crimes and misdeeds, yeah
2: yeah yeah, this is that th- th- a lot of people would, again as you pointed out didn 't expect uh, that they they would have the wherewithal uh either the nerve or the resources to investigate and convict but uh, they did. What what was what do you recall the sentence? Uh, yes, I think it was uh,
8: for um 6 years if I'm remembering correctly. Uh let's see, he's been he was sentenced to 5 years in prison as well as a fine of 8,000 euros, but then there was also the restitution uh that stretches into the hundreds of thousands of euros. Wow. Now, the question's been asked, uh, will he actually serve that time? And typically, in cases like this, uh, it is distinctly possible that he will not end up serving. Uh, But the damage is done, so to speak, because he's already been permanently barred from holding public office.
12: Mm -hmm.
8: And uh, he is essentially removed now from all possible consideration of any Potential rehabilitation as a member of the College of Cardinals and that sort of thing. Were he to be actually sentenced and forced to serve uh, a term in prison, uh, the question has been asked would it actually be in the Vatican? And uh, the the answer to that is no. Uh, There are two small jails in the Vatican City State. Uh, that's usually held for pickpockets or others, yeah. uh, and then they're remanded, if necessary, to the Italian courts. Yeah. Uh, in this case, he would serve in an Italian prison, similar to uh, 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 Ali Akja, uh, in, who served in a, an Italian prison.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, it has, again, what, is, what are the status of Vatican finances today?
8: Well, that's a a continuing question. We hear that um, the the Vatican financial shape is uh, struggling uh, as they're continuing to grapple with the decreases in global giving. Uh, We know that an affair like this, which has cost the Vatican millions upon millions of euros over the last years, uh, don't help that reputation. Yep. Now, the, a trial like this also casts in Stark release the question of whether or not Pope Francis's reforms financially have been successful. He's not the first pope to, to do this. We can go all the way back to Pope Paul VI and the the, the scandal of the, the Vatican Bank. Right. Uh, we can go to the time of Pope John Paul II, and then especially in, in the tenure of Pope Benedict XVI. So some of these crises are, I wouldn't say intractable. But uh, it does involve a a real process of modernization and an ongoing commitment uh, to transparency and oversight. And I will say to his genuine credit, I think Pope Francis has uh, shown uh, that real commitment to both. He gave a striking uh, end-of-the-year message uh, to the Vatican auditors uh, in which he talked about the need for that vigilance. Uh, But at the same time, he talked about the need for charity and mercy, but uh, he made it pretty obvious that uh, people will be held accountable now yeah. Yeah. Uh, if this is uh, going to be something, a crime that they commit or uh, activities in which they engage. Anything similar to what Cardinal Becciou, uh apparently has now been convicted of doing involving embezzlement and uh, handing money off to uh, friends and, and his own brother.
2: Yeah. All right, let's... Uh... Let's go to uh, an area. Of Pope Francis's commitment to cleaning up Vatican finances is clear. Uh, at the same time, his the last year closed with the publication of the new declaration from the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith about uh, public blessings, uh, fiducia supplicans. Um, it was again the, the prefect uh, of the dicastery, Cardinal Victor Emmanuel Fernandez, was appointed this year by uh, the Pope Francis, and um, this document, regardless of what one personally thinks of it, uh, has has generated an incredible uh, amount of commentary, and all over the place. Yes. And, and one of the things that—two things come up. One, why the heck was it put— Why'd you release it at the end of Advent? in <laughs> <And> the second... <laughs> December 18th. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Um, what a terrible time to draw attention to what has turned out to be very controversial. And then the other thing that comes up often enough is that uh, people are not sure what to, quite to make of it. There's a lot of ambiguity here. well so, oh, that's right. Um, talk to me, first of all, about... Uh, uh, for, uh, our, our, Archbishop Fernandez now, again, uh, he he is the di- uh, prefect for the Dicastery, for the Doctrine of the Faith. Tell me about his appointment, who he is. Yeah, so this has been a, a meteoric year for uh,
8: Cardinal Fernandez. Uh, he began the year as a, a bishop, an archbishop in Argentina. He was known to be the ghost writer and primary theological advisor to Pope Francis,
12: mm-hmm. uh,
8: who then appointed him uh, back in the late spring, early summer, to the position of the head of the Dicaster of the Doctrine of the Faith, and at the very same time named him one of the 21 new cardinals that uh, Pope Francis appointed. So he, this is meteoric, at least in terms of the public spotlight, yeah. uh, in a way that's, that's quite extraordinary. He wasted no time uh, in settling into his uh, new role as uh, the, the head of this dicastery, what used to be the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he did so also, let's remember this mandate that Pope Francis gave him. And we, can, I know we can pick this up on the other side of the break, but I think we have to look at that uh, within in light of what Pope Francis ordered him to do.
2: Yeah, very good. Hold it there. That's what we'll come back and see. What is it that Pope Francis ordered? Uh, Archbishop, now Cardinal Fernandez, to do as head of the uh, of Doctrine of the Faith. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be back with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.
0: Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
10: Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week.
11: With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church.
8: St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared, it was pride that changed angels into devils.
11: It is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461.
1: For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com.
7: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
2: The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me. In this commandment, God seeks to protect us from false claims to our worship and obedience. And there are, there's a great sad history of people who have trusted in gods other than him or things other than him and the ruin that it has caused. And so God is trying to protect us and call us to an absolute trust and obedience of him He asks us to trust Him above all things and above all other people or so-called gods. We have to also avoid things like consulting horoscopes, palm reading, clairvoyance, recourse to mediums, any desire to try to control things apart from God. God simply says, trust me, I am the Lord your God. The
1: first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before
7: me. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What are the theological virtues? The Catholic Catechism tells us they are the foundation of Christian moral activity. Infused into our souls by God, they enable us to act as God's children and merit eternal life. The three theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. Faith is the virtue by which we believe in God and all that he has said and revealed to us, as well as what the Church has proposed for our belief, because God is truth itself. The Apostle James, however, reminds us that faith without works is dead. A disciple of Christ, says the Catechism, must also be willing to profess and spread the faith. Our Lord said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Al Crest. Looking over 2023 in the Catholic Church with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Pope Francis appointed um, Argentine Archbishop um, <clears throat> Victor Manuel Fernandez uh, as head of the dicastery uh, for the doctrine of the faith, and gave him some clear instructions. So, what what was her? What were his instructions to uh, Cardinal now Cardinal uh, uh, Fernandez? Yes, if we go back to uh, I think it was early July when
8: he first appointed him, again, uh, it's worth noting it, again that he had been serving as the Archbishop of La Plata in Argentina, he had been rector of the uh, Catholic University of Argentina, uh, and that uh, it had been a fight on the part of Pope Francis to get him appointed to that role. And uh, he had subsequently helped draft so many of Pope Francis's key documents. When he appointed him, uh, he wrote a letter, which is highly unusual at the time of the appointment. And in that letter, he wrote that the dicastery over which you will preside in other times came to use immoral methods. There were times when rather than promoting theological knowledge, possible doctrinal errors were pursued. What I expect from you is certainly something very different. And then he wrote, the different lines of philosophical, theological, and pastoral thought, if they allow themselves to be harmonized by the Spirit in respect and love, Can also make the Church grow. This harmonious growth will preserve Christian doctrine more effectively than any mechanism of control." So it's very clear that he had a role for, immediately after this, uh, Cardinal Fernandez. And part of that, too, he said, is to uh, really try to, in this horizon of richness in the the Church's teachings, a special care to verify that the documents of your own dicastery and those of others have an adequate theological foundation and are coherent with what he called the rich soil of the Church's perennial teachings, and at the same time take into account the recent magisterium. Now, when you look, uh, and and, and all of us who follow uh, the work of the the Holy See now have bookmarked on our phones and uh, laptops or any other every other way of keeping track of things the home page for the documents of the dicaster the doctrine of the faith Yeah. because since the time of his appointment in july uh, he has issued some 10 separate documents and statements by way of context uh prior to that the last one before that was in 2022 and before that was in 2021 so they, wow. they, they Dicastry basically averaged one or two documents a year. He has already issued some ten, including seducia supplicants, as well as the uh, controversial, but nothing rising to the level of fiducia, various responsa uh, to the dubia of cardinals, especially when it came to the question of community for the divorced and remarried, and can trans persons uh, be godparents, that sort of thing. Yeah. So he is responding clearly to the direction and the vision of Pope Francis, not just for how the dicasties is supposed to be run, but for how these documents are supposed to be worded, and uh, it's very clear uh, that the two of them are working very closely uh, in laying out what I think Pope Francis clearly wants is a a legacy that will extend well beyond his pontificate.
2: Hmm. What will that legacy be? Well, I think uh, for Pope Francis,
8: it, it goes back uh, to synodality, although yep. that has now been, frankly, o- completely overshadowed uh, by uh, fiducia supplicans, which has emerged, I think. It has managed even to overshadow uh, much of the controversy surrounding Amoris Laetitia, but they're similar in a way, because both of them very clearly uh, look at pastoral situations uh, and give heightened flexibility yep. uh, when it comes... Time to apply those, yep. uh, and obviously in this document we're trying to separate out between liturgical blessings versus pastoral ones. But it does go some lengths, I think, of, of severing or creating a separation uh, between pastoral practice and church teaching. Yeah, and it clearly upholds the church's teachings on marriage. But at the same time, it is opening the door for what Pope Francis wants, which is mercy, which is to extend the loving mercy of God as far and as wide as possible, and I think that's one of the things that we see here in exactly the same way that we saw it with Amoris Santitia.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's my understanding that <clears throat> Eastern churches don't distinguish between liturgical blessings and these kind of spontaneous pastoral blessings that are referred to in the document. Do you know anything about that? Yes, well, it's, it's uh, we have the announcement,
8: for example, I think, from uh, Major Archbishop of Shevchuk, oh, uh, that yeah. uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has banned any notion of granting these types of pastoral blessings. Yeah. Uh, we've had a statement, I think, from Metropolitan Hilarion, who at one time was the a foreign minister, so to speak, of the Russian Orthodox, or the Patriarchate of Moscow, which is Orthodox, so we always have to, to be very clear And when we're talking about Eastern Catholics yep. versus the Orthodox. But uh, he expressed alarm and great dismay uh, over this, because he sees it also as a potential impediment for future ecumenical dialogue. Yep. Uh, we, we even had the evangelicals, or groups of them, weighing in with their own alarm and dismay. In right. this, right. Uh, And then... We have the response from bishops from all across Africa, uh, as you know, and, and parts of Asia, who are simply up in arms over yeah. the notion of granting these types of blessings.
2: Yeah, and I know that in the United States, uh, there are bishops who are saying to their priests, um, don't do any blessings except for married couples and those intending to marry within the Catholic Church until this we can sort all this out. So I don't know how long that will take, but... Well, it, it, we'll have
8: to see, because two things uh, immediately happened. The first was, in this decree, uh, Cardinal Fernandez made it very clear, and he says uh, that he did not expect to have any further comment on any of this, yeah. uh, that this was it, this was going to be his only statement. Uh, now, he has subsequently given multiple interviews on multiple platforms trying to answer questions and to provide additional clarification about what this is and what this isn't and what the extent of it is. And uh, the other thing that has happened uh, is that uh, there are those who quite predictably have tried to use this to push an agenda, as they have throughout this pontificate, that goes well beyond, I think, anything that Pope Francis has said or written. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go back to the fact that uh, what were supposed to be simple and spontaneous blessings uh, are now being done very publicly with prearranged photographs with the priest wearing a stole uh, and or the the photographer of the New York Times suddenly showing up at Father James Martin's apartment.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that's obviously that's in direct violation of the the word of the document itself, which makes it clear that uh, these quote, spontaneous blessings are not to involve vestments, uh, you know, candles, anything that mimics uh, the setting of uh, weddings or marriage. So, yeah, it's, well, that's right. It's an abuse, it's, and, and document's and, abused already. Yes, exactly. And and again, we we
8: go back to the the declaration itself that Cardinal Fernandez went to some pains in this to reiterate the teachings of the Church on marriage.
2: Yes, absolutely. No, there is, There's an op- absolutely clear firewall here in this document, and anybody... The problem who... <laughs> is that
8: uh, it is being assumed uh, that there are those who either do not understand the decree itself, or who are pushing much farther than this document is willing to go. So here we are, where we've just been talking about the synod on synodality. Well, it brings us straight back to the German synodal way, uh, which itself pushed, even throughout this year, right into and past the synod on synodality, declaring that it was moving ahead yeah. uh, with its planned blessings. And the response of a number of the German bishops was that to fiducius suplicans is that, well, this validates uh, this completely, gives us the carte blanche to do whatever we want, even though Cardinal Fernandez himself has said in a number of interviews that, yes, he's going to have to go to Germany to try to get this sorted. But unfortunately, it's not just in Germany. It could be a couple of dioceses in the U.S. It could as well be uh, Belgium. It could also be the Netherlands. Uh, So I think it's very clear the way the response has, has rolled out. that there are those who are extremely alarmed about this, but then there are those who plan to exploit it pretty ruthlessly for their own agendas.
2: Well, uh, let's talk about somebody who's probably not too preoccupied uh, with this problem, and that's a 16-year-old Spanish World Youth Day pilgrim who said she miraculously recovered her sight (laughs) after receiving the Eucharist at Fatima uh, during Mass there. It's a wonderful story, and I mean, receiving, (laughs) receiving your sight is... Pretty unambiguous miracle. At least some, <laughs> yes, it is. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and, and I
8: think that was a, um, one of the, the highlights of the year, uh, from my standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, that Pope Francis went to Portugal. And I remember you and I talked uh, quite often uh, throughout World Youth Day in Lisbon, yeah. uh, and we go all the way back to August, that Pope Francis spoke frequently. And from the heart, about evangelization, about helping these kids to go back home to proclaim Jesus, yes, and he had these intimate moments with them. I know there was controversy about the uh, how or whether or not the communion was distributed properly, at some of the events, and was that actual World Youth Day events, that sort of thing, but to have a million and a half young people gather together in Lisbon today in Europe yeah. is an immense statement it is and uh the the young lady who was uh, cured I, I remember her father uh, it took place uh, during a, a mass in fatima uh, during world youth day and her name was jimena and her her father i think said it best he called it a leap in faith and a gift from the virgin for world youth day itself yeah yeah and i, I think many lives were touched um by world youth day and i think uh well, Francis, I don't know if he was conscious of the fact or was thinking that this could be his last one. He, he just turned 87. We know he's had some health issues, especially this year. But it was obvious that this is very important to him. And a number of bishops that I talked to from Europe and the United States and elsewhere said that it was it was palpable to them how important it was for him to be there in Lisbon.
2: Yeah. My daughter and son-in-law and their eight children all went uh, to Lisbon, and uh, while, in, while in fact the arrangements were very difficult uh, to get around, um, it's, it, memorable, it's a lifetime memorable experience for them. Uh, yes, they've declared. Yeah. So, yeah, I and and it's part of a of a year of some pretty remarkable travels by Pope
8: Francis. I mean, we're we're always amazed that he's able to take these trips. I and mean, just in this year, he visited the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. Uh, he went to Hungary. Uh, he had a brief stop in Marseille. I obviously went to Portugal, but then the the other one that uh, I think was uh, the most interesting uh, was his uh, unprecedented journey to
2: Mongolia of all places. Yes, yes. <laughs> not not again. over not overwhelmed with Catholics there. No, I think <laughs> uh, it's about ten
8: thousand total or so. Yeah, and uh, that's it, about the size of a of a typical suburban parish in some of the growing communities. Think of Las Vegas, for example, which has many parishes that have 10,000 families at least, and yet he was making a point, as he has, by going to places like Myanmar and others where you have a tiny Catholic population. But part of it is because he is circling China, but he's also making a point that this is the future, and we have to look forward to the future of growth in Asia for the Church.
2: Okay. Well, we didn't get to a miracle in Missouri, uh, where the body of Benedictine sister's foundress uh, was thought to be incorrupt. But uh, we'll save that uh, for another day. Matthew, thanks. Good time, Al. Yeah, a
8: great privilege to be with you, really was, and, and a blessed and happy new year for everyone. Indeed, thank you.
11: Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there.
5: For someone who loves to chat and who has spent her entire adult career in communications, silencing my voice doesn't go over well with me. As a journalist, I focused on seeking truth. In recent years truth has been suppressed and speech censored that is what has been happening to conservative voices trying to be heard in secular media and on social media posting a simple prayer like the our father or hail mary has been taken down by big tech disagreeing with a more liberal viewpoint when it comes to politics has prompted attacks and name-calling even when you share facts to support your opinions we must speak up in charity, in love, without judgment or reciprocating the madness. We must continue to stand up and speak for justice, for truth, for our faith and as brothers and sisters in Christ. Seek truth, and when you find it, stand up proudly, speak up eloquently, and don't allow others to silence your voice. This has been a christ Center Communication Message. I'm Vanessa Hagarmo, a communications evangelist.
2: Good afternoon i'm al cresta thanking you for being with me today and let me uh congratulate another member of the ewtn radio family Aperio radio in sheridan wyoming celebrating nine years with us so congratulations to gregory marshall and everyone at khma from all your friends here at ewtn radio thank you for being with me today as we looked over uh, 2023. We'll do the same on Friday uh, in a number of different fields. We'll uh, take a look at uh, the year in review. And uh, in the meantime, you can follow up on our conversations today by going to AveMariaRadio.net. That again is AveMariaRadio.net. Go to the Cresta Guest Archives, contact information, articles associated with the topics.
1: I'll see you tomorrow. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at avemariaradio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.